wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord, and Abel he also brought of the first of the flocks and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou, be, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother. And it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. Things start so hopeful in verse 1, and they go to so hopeless in verse 8. We see the potential for a Messiah as Eve is holding her son, and then we see he turns into a murderer by verse 8. A lot transpires here, and as we've seen looking at the first four verses, or really the first uh, up to the half of verse 4, I guess, we've seen the, the worship that has been offered, we've seen their occupations, we've seen what God requires, what God expects, what God deserves even. Uh, a holy God deserves a holy people. Uh, a holy God deserves a holy sacrifice. A faithful God deserves a, a faithful offering. Uh, it, it is not so much about going between uh, is, is fruit good, is vegetables good, is, is a blood offering. Uh, it, look, the idea of this is that he is established from even beforehand in chapter 3 of Genesis that a blood sacrifice is required to cover the sins of sinners. But it is more so than just any old blood. It must be substitutionary blood. It must be one of, of pureness. But ultimately, that is just to represent as a figure and a picture of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who will one day come to take away the sins of the world. But that offering and every offering that must be offered must be done so by faith. And so what we find is that today we no longer have a need for uh, blood uh, offerings. Jesus has shed His blood once and for all. We praise God for that. But today we are called to be living sacrifices. We are called to be living sacrifices. And the only way to be a living sacrifice unto God is to do so by faith. What we find in, in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, if you will, we find, uh, we find all these different people who lived and walked by faith. And they're remembered, not for their faults and failures, in which all of them had those, but they're known by faith because all of life is to be one of faith, trust, dependence upon the Lord. Now, as we've seen their worship that has been offered, or even to some degree their lack thereof, one offers worship by faith, the other uh, Cain uh, does not. What we're going to find now tonight is the two different outcomes of this. We often don't think about this. When we come to church to worship the Lord, and by the way, this is, this is our own mistake for, for naming our services the way that we do. Every time that we come here to gather together should be worship service. Notice how we've always, we distinguish Sunday school from, from worship, right? And, and we even do it in the way that we pray at times, and I'm guilty of it. We'll go, Lord, now prepare our hearts for worship. You know, and we got Sunday school out of the way, so now, now we'll get to the worship part. Well, worship should be every time that the saints of God are gathered together. It, worship should be every time that we walk through these doors, and, and even when, and especially when we're not in these four walls, that we have our hearts um, lifted up to the Lord, um, surrendered to the Lord, to be given to Him as a living sacrifice, as an offering, holy and acceptable and blameless unto God. 
which is our reasonable service, the, the whole nine yards, to live, to live a, a Christian life, a true Christian life, is a life of worship unto the Lord. But we don't often think about this, though, that how we worship does have an outcome. The outcome is, is a couple of ways here. One, whether God accepts it or not. God does not accept all worship. There are some today who make the argument that, um, well, you know, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, well, it's just essentially the same thing. They've all got Abraham and Moses and Jesus. Uh, they all serve the same God. They'll all get to the same place. They won't. They won't. Neither will the rest of the world. Outside of the Bible, there is no truth. Outside of the Bible, there is no authority. Outside of the Bible, there is no life. There is no hope. There is no forgiveness of sins. However, what we do find is that every time that worship is offered, there is an outcome of whether God accepts it or not. But even more so, think about this. The way you worship will be the way that you live. We often think that it's the way that we live will determine how we worship in the church, right? You know, I had a bad week, so maybe I'll come in here and I'll really be somehow magically on fire for the Lord. You know, I, I, I've lived in sin all week, but somehow come Sunday morning, I'll be just ready to go. No, you will not, right? If you can even get drug in here on a Sunday morning after living in sin in the world all week, that's a miracle in of itself, let alone to actually worship the Lord in a pleasing and honoring manner. We've got to understand this, though. Worship is so critical, not just on a Sunday morning, but even tonight, mind you. How we approach Bible study matters, and it will have an outcome because you and I both will leave this place, right? I get to come back tomorrow morning, study, prepare, do the whole, go through the whole thing. We're going to be back Sunday morning, and we'll do it all over again, right? Sunday school, Sunday morning, Wednesday, uh, Sunday night, all this stuff. But if we treat every service as it is a moment in time to meet with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, to meet together to do what we talked about at the beginning of this year, to worship, to worship the Lord in spirit and truth, to be discipled as well as make disciples, and that's just not sitting and learning some things in our minds. To really be a disciple means to follow the Lord. Well, that requires much more than a head knowledge. It requires a heart belief, a heart walk, a heart desire fellowship together, outreach, right? These things will never be accomplished, but each one of these together does have an outcome in a church, but as well in the life of the believer. What we're going to see here is the way in which God accepts one's offering, Abel, because he offered by faith, and rejects Cain's offering, who did not offer by faith, we will find that there's an outcome. The outcome immediately is that God accepts the one and rejects the other, but the other outcome is that one will lead to life, the other will lead ultimately to death. Though Abel will die, he yet lives and speaks, doesn't he? By his own life and his own testimony, a life lived by faith. But Cain's, his speaks as well. But his outcome is not so good. His outcome is one that has rejected the Lord. His outcome is one that has walked in sin. His outcome is when he is remembered in Scripture, he is not remembered for anything good at all. As a matter of fact, he and his brother will now be pit against each other in this sense of you can either go the way of Cain, as 1 John tells us, or the way of Abel. This is the way of faith. This is the way of unbelief. How you worship God has a, not just an immediate outcome of whether you'll get angry, mad, and go kill somebody or not, right? We don't want that. It's got even more of a, a different outcome than God just accepting your offering on that Sunday morning or that Wednesday night. In that moment, it's got much more than that. Our worship, we've got to understand this, 
has eternal significance. Because worship is meant to be eternally focused, eternally minded. All of our life, by the way, and not just what happens in church, not just what happens in your personal, private devotions and prayer life, all of life is meant to be lived for eternity. It's meant to be lived for God in worship of God. As we get here to this, let's get into verse 4, right? In Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof. We dealt with that last week. It says, And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. So the first thing we find in this first outcome is that they both offer, but God, the first thing we find is that Abel offers by faith and God accepts that. God accepts faith. Faith is needed to be acceptable before God. Faith cannot be mustered up in the mind, nor can it be um, imitated by hands. Faith is of a total of all of oneself. Mind, it is, it is a body, soul, spirit. It is all that you are. Totally dependent, totally trusting, leaning um, upon the Lord. God accepts Abel here. Now, Sorensen writes, and we'll get into this here for just a moment. God had respect to the offering of Abel, but not to that of Cain. The idea is that God was pleased with Abel's offering in distinction to Cain's, right? Simple enough. Sorensen goes on and he says, precisely how this was manifest is not clear. Some have assumed God caused fire to come down from heaven and lick up the offering of which he was pleased. Another commentator writes, the words had respect to signify in Hebrew to look at anything with a keen, earnest glance, which has been translated kindled into a fire so that the divine approval of Abel's offering was shown and it's being consumed by fire. I believe this is a proper understanding of what this means that God accepted it. We find this in several places. I'm going to look at a few tonight. Uh, first of all, Exodus 24, uh, verse 17, the covenant is being confirmed. Um, the tabernacle is getting to be put together, the whole, uh, the whole shebang here. But in Exodus 24, verse 17, 15, and Moses went up into the mount and a cloud covered the mount. It's God's presence. And the glory of the Lord, right? That's all of God's character, all of God's nature, all of God's attributes. It's who God is. Abode upon Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. Moses went into the midst of the cloud and got him up in the mount. And Moses went in the mount 40 days and 40 nights. How about this? 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings 18 is the story, really the account. We shouldn't really use story. It is the account of Elijah. Uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel. Now long before Elijah gets to be used by God on Mount Carmel to strike down some prophets. And one of my favorite stories, I love the happy ending. You know the happy ending of this story? All the wicked prophets are slain. God writes a happy ending. God will have justice. God offered though mercy. During this whole day of these men challenging God are up on the mountain, and all the while they have the ability to see and believe and to hear the word of the Lord. But here's what happens. Uh, o Elijah here in 1 Kings 18, verse 3. 32, and with stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar 
as great as wood contained two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood and said, fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Let me ask you this, right? Anybody that makes a fire, you want wet wood to build a fire, don't you? No, you don't, right? As a matter of fact, you want the opposite. And Elijah says, I want the wood and the sacrifice to be drenched, soaked, covered, drowned in water. He says, and he said, do it the second time. He doesn't just do it once. does it again, right? He says, and they did the second time. And he said, do it the third time. You know what they did? They did it the third time. And the water ran round about the altar and he filled the trench also with water. You can have the idea. We've got this creek right in front of our house. Sort of, I don't know if it's a creek. It makes it sound majestic and nice. It's really just a, a nasty drain runoff, right? But uh, there's some fish in there. They've got a couple arms and legs and several eyeballs. And I'm just kidding, right? But there's, a, there's this body of water. And you think about when a big rain comes, what does it do? That thing rises up, it's rushing, all that sort of thing. You can imagine this around this altar of the sacrifice, right? The altar is drenched, the sacrifice is drenched, the wood is drenched, and around it is just nothing but water. Perfect place for a fire, right? Notice this. Man's fire can't consume any of that, can it? Man's not going to light any of that on fire. But here's what happens. And you guys already know this, but this is just good. We've got to learn it again. And it came to pass at the time of the offering and the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, or Jacob, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord. Hear me that this people, and here's the key, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. What a beautiful prayer this is. Verse 38. You want to know how God, how you know how, how we know God accepts that prayer? How God accepts that sacrifice? Not because Elijah lit a good match and, and threw it on there. Elijah doesn't have to do any of it. God accepts that faithful prayer and he says, verse 38, then the fire of the Lord, not of Elijah, of the Lord, fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. What acceptance there is there, huh? How about furthermore we find um, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, the most simplest of verses that comes at the end of, of the author of Hebrews giving this long paragraph, uh, essentially showing we now have access where there was no access. We're not looking now for Mount Sinai, but rather for uh, the eternal Zion, uh, the eternal city of God, not made with uh, the hands of men, but by the hand of God. And one day we'll be with the Lord. And, and Jesus is the, the mediator of this new covenant. He's greater. The covenant is greater. God is greater. It's all about Christ. And he says this at the very end of the chapter. This is how he closes it. Uh, I'll back to verse 28. Wherefore we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, this is important as well, too, because if we remember, there were men in the Old and New Testament, a couple, as a matter of fact, in the New Testament, that died because of their sin against the Lord. Just like that. God has consumed many by fire. In judgment, but God has also accepted the sacrifice 
by fire. Our God Himself is called a consuming fire. Now this is interesting to note. How is Jesus described in Revelation chapter number 1 when John sees Him? With eyes that are blue and blonde hair. No. No, He looks nothing like our pictures that we've got in our churches. Take them down. <laughs> what does He look like? Because His eyes are as a flame of fire. Fire purifies. It represents His holiness, His justice, even His judgment. We find that our God is a consuming fire. I believe here in this moment, when God accepts this, He gives this outward sign to them showing the fruit and vegetables are off to themselves, right? By this time, there's flies. So you you can almost imagine. But for Abel's sacrifice, of which he offered by faith, licked up and accepted by the Lord. It is a joyful thing to see God move and to know that God accepts you. That you and I no longer need fire to consume a sacrifice. Rather, what we've been given is the, the Holy Spirit of God that shows us that we are accepted in Christ, that we are assured by Him, that we can know Him and walk with Him and be empowered and, and, and controlled by Him. But we see these outcome here and we find that God accepts it. The Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. Guzik writes, the writer to the Hebrews clearly explained why the offering of Abel was accepted and the offering of Cain was rejected. By faith, Abel offered up a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, Hebrews 11.4. Cain's offering was the effort of dead religion, while Abel's offering was made in faith and a desire to worship God in spirit and in truth. Abel sacrificed the same way that God had originally sacrificed. Let's remember this. Who makes the first sacrifice? Is it Abel or is it God? It's God. It's not even Adam and Eve, is it? Adam and Eve, their first attempt at covering up themselves before God is to grab some fig leaves and make a covering of their private parts and then go, well, this isn't good enough. We have to hide behind the tree of which God made. How about then this? It is God who establishes a blood sacrifice. It is God who does so not for His sake, but rather for the sinner's sake, to cover them figuratively by the blood, if you will, but as well to cover their physical nakedness and to give them a picture of what must be done in order to know Him, in order to walk rightly before Him, in order to fellowship with Him, in order to worship Him, that there is only one way to worship God. God has told us how to worship Him in spirit and in truth. God has told us that worship what worship is, what is required in worship. We often hear people go, you know what, we want to be creative with our worship and and think outside the box, right? Out of the box at times can be out of the book. The, The book has spoken. We have a book. We have an authority that has told us who God is, what is required of God, and how to worship Him. Therefore, we need nothing else. The Scripture is sufficient to tell us what we need to know of God and what we need to know and how to worship and approach Him. It is a serious thing to worship the Lord. It is a privilege to worship the Lord. It is a joyful thing to worship the Lord. But we must never forget, though, because of who God is, it is a serious thing. There have been those who are even well-meaning in what they were doing and still were not accepted by the Lord. Remember, there were a couple of sons of Eli who offered up strange Strange fire, strange incense. And and God said, you know, they might be making an offering, but it's not the right kind. Right? 
How about uh, the gentleman who is helping to bring the ark back, right? And the ark starts to fall. And what's he do? Naturally, if, if I go to drop something or if I start to fall off here, I know that Caleb's going to run up and catch me, right? As soon as I start to lean over, is he coming? Right? As soon as it starts to lean, what happens? Our natural response, oh, God said no. You and I look at that and go, well, that sounds so harsh, so severe. And we think of that as harsh and severe because we are in sinful flesh with sinful minds. And ultimately, when we read about those accounts, not stories, those accounts, it makes us much more accountable unto God and it makes us fearful. And we don't like that. But fear is the beginning of wisdom and understanding and knowledge. And it's a fear and a knowledge of the holy that shows us who God is, that drives us to worship Him in spirit and truth. Now, if you notice in John, in spirit and truth, right? It's a lowercase s for spirit. What does that mean? Well, it means that our spirit has to surrender to His spirit, which is called in 1 John the spirit of truth. Meaning that our life and the way in which we worship God must be done God's way. Only God's way. Now what's the difference here? You see, we find that for Cain and Abel, and for you and I today, the Spirit is greater than the flesh. Faith is greater than works. You say, well, how about James? He says, you've got to show me your works, right? Lest your faith is dead. Guess what? Your works will not come unless you have real faith. There will never be real works of righteousness without real faith and covered by the Lord's righteousness. Faith is the difference, though, between man's religion and God's redemption. There are plenty of people today who have faith in man's religion. They are trusting that that religion will cover them, but they are living unredeemed. The only redemption is found in trusting in God's promise and God's provision. That is God's word, God's work, and then it's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in this, Abel's offering is founded upon faith in God's person and work in order to be accepted in the sight of God. It, it, it is as if he already knows the beautiful hymn, nothing in his hands he brings, simply to the cross he clings. There's no cross yet. There's, there's no Jesus who has come yet. But nevertheless, the promise has been made. The provision has been given because God has said, this is how I must be worshipped. If you want to know me, if you want to walk with me, it's all by grace through faith. Phillips writes this. Phillips here um, sort of pictures what it might have looked like for Abel here. And I wanted to include this for us tonight to maybe put ourselves in this perspective. Phillips writes, He built, no doubt, a small altar of stones. He cut his kindling, struck his fire, and set his logs ablaze. Then he took hold of his lamb. We can visualize the trusting, gentle, innocent things looking up at him with big, liquid eyes. He placed his hand upon it, and the little thing trembled at his touch. How could he do that thing? Then swift and sure, he seized his knife and cut its throat and watched the red blood spurt. He watched it die. Then with a sob and a soul, we can see him lift the silent form, place it on the flames, and offer it up to God, tears running down his cheeks, it was a dreadful way to approach God. 
But sin is a dreadful thing. Philip's here, I believe, rightly, in not an exaggeratory way, describes what it was like. You and I, unless you've slaughtered some animals or, or, or anything like that, we ought to teach that in Sunday school, right? We ought to have a Sunday school class where we, where we do such. That sounds atrocious. But for you and I, we didn't live in the day of which Abel lived, or, or let alone Israel, where every day you see sacrifice and offering. Every day there's going to be an innocent little lamb or goat or ox that's going to be taken off. Has no idea what's about to happen. A hand is going to be placed on them, imputing sin, if you will, as the figure is, to have their, their throat cut, their blood drained, and for them to then be placed upon an altar so that the sinner, the sinful man, would not have to be. We don't know what that looks like because we've never had to do it. The closest thing that you and I can see, and it's still 2,000 years away from us, is the cross of Christ. There, Jesus had our sin placed upon Him, and it was His blood that was drained and shed for us for the remission of our sins. Not for His sins, but to clothe us, to cleanse us from our sins. There are some who don't like the cross of Christ. And you know why? Because it's a bloody cross. People don't like the way that we believe because they say, well, it's just so bloody. We ought to not... You ought to not... There's plenty. There's a big push today. You ought not sing the songs about blood in it. It just turns people off. You know why it turns them off? Because the blood reminds them of their sin. As it should. The reason why every time Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and on down the line, you know what they would have thought every time that they slaughtered an animal to take the coats of skins and to clothe their naked bodies? You know what they would have thought of? Their sin. You know what you and I don't think of anymore when we put on clothes? Our sin. You know what we probably should think of? You know, we, we grab a shirt and we go, did it stink? Did I wash it? Right? Is it clean? But what we should be thinking of more than is this shirt clean is, am I clean? Am I clean before God? And here, Phillips rightly says, and my favorite phrase of this is that ending. It was a dreadful way to approach God. It was. We think of the tabernacle and the temple as these beautiful, ornate places. And they were, by the way. But they were a place... Imagine. It was a place where you would hear the sound of little lambs. And then there would be silence. Because that lamb was no longer alive. It died so you could keep walking. It died so you could know God. There on Calvary's hill, perhaps in the silence of the darkness or perhaps even in the cries of our Savior from the cross, what we find is that He goes through that so that we don't have to. It is a dreadful way to approach God, but we also have to understand that God is described even as, a, as this consuming fire and a dreadful, terrible thing. Not in a sinful way that we think, but in something that in all that He is, we can't approach Him. And He does the dreadful thing to His Son so that He doesn't have to do that dreadful thing to you. So that we can now approach Him through the blood of 
His Son. And this should show us that sin is a dreadful thing. We might just have our lives changed and our churches changed, communities changed, if we were to take sin and the Savior seriously. We'll never take Jesus as serious as we should unless we begin to take our sin as serious as we should. We love to abuse God's grace more than anything. We love His grace. We love it because it sets us free. And we love to run with that freedom to places that we ought not go and do things that we ought not do, and we know it. But we do it because we like it. And in that moment, we like that sin more than we love our Savior. And yet still, His blood is still there for us, and we are still cleansed and covered by it. That's who our Savior is. The beginning of any revival and the beginning of any Christian who will begin to live for the glory of God and truly live for the glory of God, it's only going to be found when we begin to take sin seriously. When we begin to lift high the Savior for what He's done for us. The sacrifice that Abel offers would be the norm for all of those who would choose the way of faith until the day in which the true Lamb of God would die for the sins of man once and for all. You can see Hebrews 9-10 through 10 for that. And then we find this. God rejects Cain's offering. And this is pretty simple here. Abel offers by faith. Cain, faith in himself. One does it in worship, in true worship. The other one does it in idolatry. Kidner writes, Cain's spirit was arrogant. The New Testament draws out the further important implications that Cain's life, unlike Abel's, gave the lie to his offering. 1 John 3.12 And that Abel's faith was was decisive for his acceptance. I want to read for you Proverbs 21, verse 27 for just a moment. Proverbs 21, verse 27. tells us, The sacrifice of the wicked is abomination. How much more when he bringeth it with a wicked mind. May that be on your heart the next time you come in here for worship service, right? May that be on your heart the next time that you approach God's throne. May that be on our hearts the next time we open up His Word. That it matters how we approach worship. It matters how we approach God. Rice. Brother old John R. Rice writes, His own works were evil. That is, he was a wicked man. We do not know the details of his wickedness, but it is always true that the so-called liberal in doctrine is also wicked in heart. One cannot have the righteousness of God without having Christ, and to reject Christ and His blood atonement is usually because already one has rejected the moral standards of God and has chosen to sin. So once again reiterates that the only way to God is God's way. And Jesus says, I am the way. And that it's a narrow way that leads to life everlasting. The way of Cain here, it's referred to in Jude 11. You can go back and read for sake of time. I won't tonight. But the way of Cain is one that is of self-will self-righteousness. It's not the way of the cross. I'm not sure what song it is. Someone would probably know, but 
There's a, the way of the cross leads home. Right? The, there is only one way, and it can't be man's way. The only way to God is God's way, and the way in which God chose to bring us and to reconcile us, Colossians chapter 1 tells us, it's having reconciled us by the blood of His cross. We never forget such. Phillips writes, Cain brought an offering, but not a sacrifice. He expressed pious thoughts, but ignored Calvary. He was willing to worship, but only on his terms. I'm afraid that many do the same in our average Baptist churches today. I'm afraid that many of us do the same thing when we approach God in our prayer life. We must never worship on our terms. God has given us the terms and conditions. Faith accepts it. Hebrews 11, verse 6 tells us this, But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. The sinner needs that substitutional Savior, but even with that, the sinner needs to put their trust, their faith, their hope, everything that they are, upon that. It was never, and some would disagree, and that's all right. They can if they want to. Some would say that Old Testament saints were saved because they shed blood. Because the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. However, what we have to understand is this. You can sacrifice a lamb or a goat all day long and sacrifice it to the devil and still not be saved. You can sacrifice a lamb or a goat all day long. And without faith, all you've done is kill a lamb and kill a goat. You can get in a baptistry or join a church or walk an aisle or shake a hand or do 14 jumping jacks down the aisle and do the hokey pokey and turn yourself around and still do it all without faith. So what's the key for Abel and Cain here? What's the key for you and I tonight? Real worship acceptable worship unto God is only found by faith. May we approach the Lord tonight as we leave this place, as we come back again Sunday. May we approach it and everything that we do by faith so that it would be pleasing, acceptable, and worshipful to the Lord our God. Amen? Now, Brother J.L., I'm going to ask you to close us in prayer tonight and uh, we're going to be dismissed and uh Lord willing, we're going to close this out uh, next, next Wednesday. But I appreciate each one of you for being here. And I plan on seeing you guys Sunday morning.